I invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 16, the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 16, and we will begin reading in verse 13, as is evident by the scripture announcement. We're going to take a break for a few weeks from Titus, but don't worry, uh, we will return to the book of Titus in a few short weeks to finish that series. Today is our covenanting service. And there's a lot of things that that means, but one of the things that that means is that we are joining in formal commitment to establish a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that we've talked about in technical theological language uh, that up until this point we've not in a formal sense been a church. I'll take ownership for some of the confusion that that may have caused, but as we walk through this text today in Matthew 16 and see just what it is that Jesus institutes as a church and the responsibilities that he gives to the church, I pray that that will become abundantly more clear to you in what a true church the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so if you found your place to Matthew chapter 16, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 13, the word of the Lord says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. I have heard various of you describing your children at home playing church. And they will go through the motions and they will play church and, and they're having fun in doing that. But that raises a question. What would be required of them for it to stop being playing church and become an actual church? For them to be believers? For them to go out into the swimming pool in the backyard and begin baptizing one another in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? For them to play church regularly? Would this make them a church? Well, I think intuitively we know the answer to all of those questions is no. But what about for adults and genuine Christians? What about a group of Christians who regularly gather together? What constitutes a church? After all, the word church means assembly or a gathering. So what constitutes a church? When several Christians gather together and begin discussing the gospel in Walmart, does Walmart Baptist Church suddenly spring into existence? Or if we do gospel evangelism on Mississippi State's campus, does uh, State Baptist Church spring into existence as we Christians are preaching the gospel there? Does putting the name Grace Covenant Church on an organization make it a church? Again, I think intuitively we all know that something more than just calling a church a church makes it a church, or even gathering as Christians makes it a church. But as we look at this text today, the fundamental questions that we want to be asking ourselves is, what is a church? What foundation is a church supposed to be built upon? 
What is it uh, that constitutes a church? And this text gives answers uh, to help with these questions. But here's another question that is important because I think Jesus indirectly answers this question for us in this text. As a church of Jesus Christ, how do we know that we're being successful? How do we know that we're doing what's right? How do we know that we're succeeding in the charge and the mandate that Christ has given to his churches? What is the measuring rod of success? Is it attendance? Is it membership? Do you suddenly become a church and successful when you have X number of people on the roll and X number in Sunday morning attendance? Or is it when your budget grows to a certain size? Again, of course, we all know that none of these things define a church or even constitute a church. And yet sometimes we talk about the church as if those things do make a church. But here in Matthew 16, in Jesus' very first mention of the church, he makes it clear that he builds his church upon a proper confession of who he is. He builds his church on the gospel and upon gospel confessors. And so Jesus here promises to build his church, and he explains the foundation that he's going to build it on. You can think of the foundation of the church a little bit like building a house. If you don't build a proper foundation, then the house is going to fall. In fact, this analogy is so comparable that Jesus uses it elsewhere in the Gospels when he speaks of uh, the man who builds the house upon the sand, and the rain fell and the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapses. But the one that was built upon the rock does not collapse. The, the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. And so while we're asking the question, what is the foundation of the church? And, and I've already proposed to you that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who confess the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might be thinking of places elsewhere in scripture that Jesus says that he is the cornerstone of the church. And it's built upon the foundation of him and the apostles and the prophets. And, uh, and that the word of God would be the foundation of the church and all of these different things. But Jesus also uses other metaphors for himself. He's the owner of the church. Here, he's the builder of the church. Uh, there are many metaphors in Scripture regarding Christ's relationship of the church. Sometimes he's the head of the church. Sometimes he's the bridegroom of the church. And so let's not allow this mixed metaphors and various metaphors regarding Jesus' relationship of the church to detract from and take away what Jesus is establishing here in Matthew 16, that he is the one who builds his church and the foundation upon which he builds his church is those who rightly profess the gospel of Jesus Christ together in covenant community. And so today, we, Grace Covenant Church, we seek to establish a new church. We seek to gather in Christ's name in forming a local church, a local society, to the glory of Christ. And if we intend to establish a church, we need to know what the one who promised to build his church promises to bless. If we want to be the kind of church that Jesus blesses, then we need to know from his word what it is that we must build upon, and we need to know what it is we must commit ourselves to. And so if you're following along and taking notes this morning, I want us to see two things from this passage. If we are to be a true church of Jesus Christ, then Grace Covenant Church must first gather around an essential confession. Grace Covenant Church must gather around an essential confession. Look with me again at verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? You see, Jesus asked an all-important question. 
He's going to his disciples in private, but what he's doing is really taking an opinion poll. Who does everyone out there say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they give all sorts of answers. They are inadequate answers, of course. He says, some say that you're John the Baptist. This was the view of Herod. If you were to read back in Matthew 14, Herod viewed Jesus as John the Baptist reincarnate somehow. Others say you must be Elijah. You must be the forerunner who's come before the Messiah. And others say you must be Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But it's clear here that in this opinion poll, the apostles understand that no one is properly confessing who Jesus is. No group is openly confessing Jesus as the Messiah. Whether you view him as Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets or John the Baptist, all of these views fall short of who Jesus truly is. Now, this is not unlike the world in which we live today. There may be very few people saying that Jesus was Jeremiah, one of the prophets, Elijah, or John the Baptist. But there are so many errant views of who Jesus is. Jesus has the moral example. Well, we all ought to strive to live like Jesus, and that's true. And yet that falls short of who Jesus truly is. Some would say Jesus is a great teacher, and if we would just heed his teachings, then the world would be a better place. That is true as well, and yet that falls very short of who Jesus is. Some view Jesus as an agent of prosperity, that Jesus' true desire for us to be his people is that we would be healthy, wealthy, and whole, uh, that it be bring prosperity to our lives, that we would thrive in our humanity in this sense. Some would view Jesus as the, a messenger of social justice, bringing social reform and an acceptance of all. Again, all of this falls short of the truth about who Jesus is. And while we may live in an age that embraces relative truth, God's word is clear that there is only one acceptable answer to who Jesus is. And so then Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them, who do y'all say that I am? As you read it here, it says, but who do you, Jesus say, who do you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? But that word you is plural. Jesus is saying, who do y'all say that I am? And Peter, as the spokesman of the group, answers and he says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the one chosen by God, anointed by God to fulfill His promises. You are the promised King who will sit on the throne of David and deliver our people. You are the one who God has promised and foretold from, from the Old Testament and all the prophets. You are the Messiah. You are the one who will deliver your people. And yet, even here, it's not the Messiah that they expected. They thought that he would sit literally on the throne of David, that he would reign and he would rule over a people on this earth. And Jesus has already said, my kingdom is not of this world. But Peter also confesses, you are the son of the living God. And this is an essential truth to who Jesus is. He's the son of the living God. He's God, the son incarnate, God in the flesh to redeem a people for himself. And so what, G what Peter is getting at here is that Jesus a proper confession of who you are involves your person and your work. You are God the Son incarnate. You are God from all eternity come in flesh for us to redeem us. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the one who will save us from our greatest enemy, our sins. And Jesus says, this is right. 
This is a proper confession of who I am, but you have not received this from flesh and blood. You've not uh, understood this because of your own volition or will or knowledge or capabilities. No, Simon, you understand this because it has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. It is spiritually revealed. It is by divine revelation. It's not by the signs that Jesus has done, and he's done a lot of them up, in this, up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. He's fed the 5,000, he's walked on water, he's healed, he's cast out demons, he's done all of these miracles. And Jesus says, even those things have not revealed to you who I truly am. It is my Father in heaven who has spiritually revealed this to you. And so in this, Peter and the disciples are set apart from the confused crowd. And while they did not have a complete understanding yet, their understanding was a result of divine disclosure. And Jesus here is drawing a line in the sand, making a clear distinction between those who are his people and those who are not his people. Those who are in the world and those who are in the world but not of the world. Jesus draws this line in the sand and says, it is upon this confession that I will build my church. Look at verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so here comes the question. Upon what will Jesus build his church? Now I've already laid my cards on the table and said that it's not upon himself necessarily. In this metaphor, he is the builder of the church. But some would say that it's Peter. Uh, that Peter is the one upon whom Jesus will build his church and that he was the first pope of the church, the first bishop um, upon whom Jesus established the church, imposing some sort of ecclesiastical authority on the body of Christ. But he's not building the church on Peter necessarily as a man, but he's building the church upon Peter the rock who has just made a proper confession of who Jesus is. Jesus is saying that you are Peter, your name means rock, but upon the rock of the words that you have just confessed, I will build my church upon this. One commentator that I read said it this way, the confession cannot be separated from Peter, neither can Peter be separated from his confession. Jesus will build his church not on words and not on a people, but on people who believe the right gospel words. Jesus will build the church on confessors. And so Jesus, in asking this all-important question, distinguishes people who are true gospel confessors from those who are not true gospel confessors. And Jesus says, it is on this group, upon these confessors of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is God come in the flesh to redeem us from our sins. It is upon those people who confess those words, I will build my church. Dear friend, everything in your life as an individual must be built upon that confession. If, you, if that is your confession, and for those of you who have joined in membership with Grace Covenant Church, gone through a membership interview, you have verbalized and articulated that that is your confession. But that means that that doesn't just impact how you join a church, that impacts everything about who you are. You build your life upon that confession. But the church as well is built upon this great confession and those who confess it. And so where there are people to make this great confession, there will be and is a church of Jesus Christ. 
And so the fact that we have now confessed that together and we are joining together under that confession is why today we become a church of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ because we in voting, in affirmation, voted, said these are the people I want to covenant together because they have confessed the same Christ that I confess. And that makes us a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're here this morning, I want to ask you that same question If you don't know Christ in the way that I'm talking about, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, you may not be thinking, well, he's Jeremiah or one of the prophets or he's Elijah. You might be thinking he is a moral example. You might be thinking he's a great teacher. You might be thinking that he is uh, uh, an aid in social reform or something to that effect. But but C.S. Lewis, in one of his works, gives three options, really, for who Jesus is. He's either a liar... Because no one claims to be the son of God in the flesh and, um, and is telling the truth. He's either telling the truth or he's lying. Or a lunatic in the sense that he really does believe that he's the son of God in the flesh. If you ran up to someone on the street and they told you, hey, I'm, I'm the son of God incarnate. I'm, I'm God in the flesh right now. You would think that that person was either lying or a lunatic. Or he is Lord. He is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of of the living God. And if you don't know Christ this morning, you have to reckon with those options. He is either a liar, he is either a lunatic, or he is Lord. And you must bow before him. And so if you do not know Christ in this way, I ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? Because the answer to that question, upon the answer to that question, rests your eternity. You will either endure the wrath of God forever because you are trusting in your own righteousness, trusting in your own goodness, hoping that God will somehow look on your good deeds and outweigh them against your bad and say, you're good enough to get into my heaven. Or you will look to Christ, the one true perfect son of God, the Messiah, the son of the living God, come in the flesh for you, going to the cross of Calvary, dying for your sins And rising again on the first day in vindication that all that he said was true. And the work that he accomplished on the cross was accepted by Almighty God. Who do you say that Jesus is? Oh, won't you repent of your sin? Won't you turn to Christ? Won't you confess with Peter? And everyone that you saw confess this morning, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is my Christ. And he is the Son of the living God. But this question also rings true for Grace Covenant Church. The question that Jesus asked Peter, who do y'all say that I am, will always be the question every time that we gather, every decision we make as the church, who do y'all say that I am? Because every decision we make as a church and everything that we do and every time that we confess the gospel together and as we worship together, it must be built upon that confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of of the living God. The church only arises from the gospel, said someone I read. The church only arises from the gospel, and a distorted church usually coincides with a distorted gospel. And so if we are to maintain our status as a true church of Jesus Christ, then the one thing that we have to keep in front of us above all else is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who do we say that he is. The true gospel must be our banner. We must be unmistakably clear about the good news that saves sinners. For if we lose the gospel, we will lose our status as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We might still have the name on our sign. We might still gather every Sunday. But if we lose the gospel, we will no longer be a church. Who do y'all say that he is? The church gathers around this essential confession. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, it is upon that I will build my church. Jesus makes a promise here that he will build his church, a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. He will build his church of people from all around the world who will confess him as Lord. Now, Jesus here is talking in a universal sense. He's talking about the church universal, the the kingdom of God throughout the world. And yet what is true of the kingdom of God through the world, the universal church, must be true of a local church if it is to be a local church of the Lord Jesus. And so while Jesus says that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, this is not necessarily a promise to every local church. But this, is the, uh, but this is a universal church matter portrayed in local societies. And so Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. Not me, not any other pastor or elder of Grace Covenant Church, not any one individual, not a missionary, not people gifted at evangelism, not the programs that we would have here at Grace Covenant Church. None of these things will build Christ's church. Jesus will build his church. In fact, I heard one pastor say this week um, that if you can explain your church's success and growth, then it's probably not being built by the Lord Jesus. What Jesus is communicating here is that he will inexplicably, by the power of his spirit, bring a people to himself who accept a message that Paul says is folly to the world. Christ in him crucified. It is upon that that Jesus will build his church and the world hates that message. So if it makes sense to us how people are coming to believe this, then something might be wrong. But Jesus says he will build his church. He will send his spirit. He will build his church. But he also says it's my church. It doesn't belong to me and it doesn't belong to you. It doesn't even belong to the membership of Grace Covenant Church. It belongs to Christ and we are stewarding his gospel in the world around us. It is his church. Jesus builds the church, not you, not me. And no matter how clever we think we are, Jesus teaches us that he alone will build his church. He simply calls us to be faithful in what he has prescribed us to do. That means there are no tricks, no gimmicks to building the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus builds the church and then uses the church to accomplish his mission to build the church. Isn't that amazing that Jesus makes a promise to his disciples, I will build my church. And as that church is built, as the kingdom of God permeates throughout the world and more local churches are established, God chooses to use those local churches to then build more churches, to build the church further. And Jesus uses his church in building his church. You know, we all think forward to the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. We all focus in on that. That is the mission of the church, and that is true. 
But that mission, that promise, that uh, commandment from Jesus is rooted in this promise here that Jesus will build his church. He simply uses us as the means by which he does it. Christ alone has authority over his church. He establishes it, he builds it, and he empowers it. Look with me again at verse 18. He says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus is making a promise and a commitment to his church that the gates of Hades will not overpower, overcome his church because Christ himself is empowering it. And just like where Peter is talked about as the rock of the church, there's a lot of interpretations of that. There's also a lot of understandings about what this means, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. What I think Jesus is doing here is that he is using a Jewish kind of euphemism for death to explain that the church of the Lord Jesus will never die. It will never cease. There is nothing, including if we want to think of it in terms of the gates of hell trying to stop Jesus' church, nothing can kill the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is He alone who is empowering it. Jesus is the one who it is said of Him in Colossians that by the word of His power, He upholds and sustains the universe. And if He is holding every atom, every molecule in existence... How much more simple it is for him to hold his church in existence and to build his church. He holds all of creation by the word of his power. In, he sustains it by the word of his power. How much more will he sustain his church as he has promised that he would build it and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Which, by the way, this means nothing if Jesus is not who he says that he is. If he's not the Messiah, the son of the living God, then the church ought to have died off thousands of years ago. In fact, that's what happens in the book of Acts. They said, be careful what you say against this group, this church, because if it is of nothing, if it is of man, it will come to an end. But if it is of God, you will not be able to stop it. The existence of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is validation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and he empowers his church that he promises to build upon this confession. Jesus supports and empowers the church as it builds upon those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Grace Covenant Church must gather around that essential confession. But that said, there's another thing that we need to see and learn from this text this morning. And the second thing that we need to learn from this text is found in verse 19, and that is Grace Covenant Church must embrace our kingdom charge. We must embrace our kingdom charge. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now, I want to be really clear that these verses are difficult, and I will do my absolute best to explain them in tangible and clear ways, uh, but these verses are vitally important to who we are going to be as a church, and so we need to talk about what our kingdom charge is. Here, Jesus grants the church kingdom authority by giving them the keys of the kingdom. The keys are exercised by the church. Here they're given to Peter as a true gospel confessor, but if we were to continue reading on in the story of the gospel of Matthew, we'd come to Matthew 18. And many of you know that in Matthew 18 is the institution of church discipline. 
and in church discipline, the keys of the kingdom are given to the church. If a brother sins against you, you go to him. If he doesn't hear you, then you bring two or three others with you. And then you tell it to the whole church. And if he won't hear the church, you tell it, uh, then you let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 18, verse 20, excuse me, verse 19, again, excuse me, verse 18, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So here Jesus repeats his word and he gives it not just to Peter, but he gives it to the entire church, the keys of the kingdom and exercising them and binding and loosing belong to the entire church. And if we misunderstand this charge, then we'll get off track as a church from the word go. And so we need to ask the question, what are the keys of the kingdom and what does it mean to use them in binding and loosing? You see, the the kingdom is the kingdom of God throughout the world. It's not necessarily the same as the church, but it's God's establishment of his reign and his kingdom upon the world and upon his church. And so the church is the people of the kingdom, but the kingdom is even greater than the church. And Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the church because he is granting them permission to grant access and deny access to the kingdom. Think about it. You have a key to your home, and you have the power and authority to let whoever you want in or to deny access to whoever you desire because it is your home. You have authority there, and so the person with the keys has power to exclude or to permit entrance. And so in these verses, Jesus is entrusting entrance to the kingdom of heaven to his church. But not in the fact that the church unilaterally or apart from what has already been declared by God has power to deny access to the kingdom. No, it declares what God has already declared to be true. That's why the verb tense is important in verse 19. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on loose will have been loose in in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Or in other words, it will have already been bound in heaven and it will already have been loosed in heaven. In other words, the church makes a declaration that has already been handed down by God. And that is, it is expressing who is and who is not a true gospel confessor based on the words that they proclaim. Are they articulating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Or are they saying something else about Jesus? They're given the keys of the kingdom and they use these keys to bind and loose. And and binding and loosing, here one author says, exercising the keys of the kingdom is rendering judgment on a gospel what and a gospel who. A confessor, confession and a confessor. It is the authority to pronounce heaven's judgment on what and who of the gospel. More concretely, it is the authority to write and affirm statements of faith and to add and remove names in the church membership directory. In binding and loosing, in exercising the keys of the kingdom as a church, Jesus is giving authority to the church to say what the gospel is and to affirm whether or not a person believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether or not they are making a proper 
confession. You can think of this binding and loosing, this exercising of the keys of the kingdom, much like a judge in a courtroom. The decision that the judge makes is binding, and his verdict has real consequences or benefits based on how the verdict is handed down. And Jesus is giving the church the authority to hand down a verdict from heaven based on the truth of the gospel and those who confess it. The church does not make the gospel the gospel. Heaven does that. The church does not make someone a Christian or not. Heaven does that. The church declares on earth what has already been declared in heaven. And so we proclaim the gospel and we guard the gospel and we affirm credible professions of faith by voting them into membership together. And we unite them to the local church by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And week after week, serving them the Lord's Supper because Jesus has given us the keys of the kingdom. But we also have the right to bar and exclude and excommunicate those who who have not or no longer are making proper confessions about who Jesus is. If they deny that Jesus is the Christ or the Son of the living God, then the church has the right to bar and exclude in exercising the keys of the kingdom. If they begin to live a life that is no longer commensurate with the gospel that they say that they believe, The church has the authority handed to them by Christ Jesus to bind and loose. This is the authority that Christ has given his church. This is the exercising of the keys of the kingdom. The church represents the kingdom of God and Christ's rule on the earth. In summary, the keys are the church's authority to mark off God's people and to mark off God's gospel. This is our kingdom charge. This is what Christ has given the church to do. I asked the question at the beginning, how do we know that we're being successful as a church? Success is based on how firmly and how fervently we are protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ by proclaiming it rightly week after week, one to another, and by only welcoming into membership those who agree with the gospel that we have set forth in our governing documents and the gospel that we preach. And so the church exercises the keys by preaching the gospel, by welcoming those into membership, which, by the way, the outward symbol of the exercising of the keys is the Lord's Supper and baptism. It's the ordinances. We don't have a lot of time to go into why that's the case. Perhaps we'll teach on that on another time. But what we're about to do this morning in baptizing some in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in obedience to the great commission that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28 is rooted in our use of the keys in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18. When we serve the Lord's Supper to one another here in a few moments and we look around, we're silently preaching the gospel one to another. And in doing that, Grace Covenant Church is exercising the keys of the kingdom, binding and loosing, affirming one another's gospel confession. And so this shapes our thinking. This shapes our thinking on the Great Commission, how we make disciples, how we baptize them. This shapes our thinking on what our church votes on and and what it should entrust to others. Uh, Anything that has to do with the protection of the gospel belongs to Grace Covenant Church. It doesn't belong to the elders or the deacons or to any, any individual person. If it has to do with protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is our governing documents. That is what we profess the, G, the gospel to be. That's why this morning you voted on a confession. That's why you voted on a covenant. Because that had to do with protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those decisions belong 
with those who were assembled in Christ's name. And so the keys of the kingdom, binding and loosing, this is Grace Covenant Church's primary duty. We've cultivated in our minds, and I don't mean here at Grace Covenant Church, but I mean we've all grown up in other churches that maybe have unhealthy understandings of the keys of the kingdom and the primary duties of the church. And if we're serving on a committee and we're doing this and that, we're active in the church somehow, we're being faithful to what Jesus has given us to do. But here in Matthew 16, from the outset, as he promises to build his church, Jesus says the primary duty of the gathered congregation is the exercising of the keys, protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ by bringing those who are gospel confessors in and preserving the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is a church? It is those who are gathered in Christ's name regularly, who confess and preach the gospel one to another, and partake of the ordinances together by and exercising the keys that way. That is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that helps you get some insight on why we've talked in a technical sense that we're not yet a church, but now are. A church is a group of people formally committing to representing Jesus to one another and to those outside the church. But in closing, I ask us this question to challenge us. Who do y'all say that Jesus is? But that question matters today just as much as it will matter 10 years from now, 50 years from now, and 100 years from now. Who does Grace Covenant Church say that Jesus is? That is essential to our status as a church. Because to lose the gospel and to answer that question wrongly is to be removed as a church of Jesus Christ. Our church must be built upon the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and it is upon that rock he will build his church. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And may he see fit to build Grace Covenant Church upon that rock. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now thanking you for the gospel. Thanking you that Christ saves sinners. And thanking you that it is upon that confession that Christ will build his church. Father, we pray now as we sing and worship, we, we would reflect on the words that we've just heard. That we would reflect on the good news of the gospel. And that we would reflect on the good news that Jesus has ordained in his word, that he would bring gospel confessors together to worship him together and portray his name and his gospel to the world. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our hymn of reflection this morning is...